Our Old Testament lesson this morning comes from Psalm 148, verses 1 through 14. It should be found on page 509 in your pew Bibles, or 982 in the large print. Psalm 148. Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. We thank you for all that you have given to us, not giving based on what we deserve, but giving based on who you are and who you've created us to be and what you know that we need. God, we thank you for your word that you've given to us, and we pray that you would help us not to take it for granted or to take it lightly. We pray that you would open our ears so that we would hear your word. We pray that you would give us minds to understand your word and give us, give us hearts that are changed by your word and by your spirit that we would even today be made more and more into the likeness of Jesus as we become more of the people that you created us to be in relationship with you through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior in whose name we pray, amen. Psalm 148, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights above. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his heavenly hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the skies. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for at his command they were created. And he established them forever and ever. He issued a decree that will never pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all ocean depths, lightning and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds that do his bidding, you mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, small creatures and flying birds, kings of the earth and all nations, you princes and all rulers on earth, young men and and women, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His splendor is above the earth and the heavens, and he has raised up for his people a horn, the praise of all his faithful servants of Israel, the people close to his heart. Praise the Lord. Turning then to John 13. Verses 31 to 35. Which can be found on page 875. Our pew Bibles are 1674 in a large print. John 13, 31 to 35. This is on the night of the Last Supper. And Judas has already left. It says, when he, had gone, when he was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself, and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now. Where I am coming, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. 
if you love one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this morning, as Carrie mentioned earlier, we are looking at a passage from 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, actually. And we were looking at a passage in 1 Peter last week where it actually talked about us being a chosen people and a royal priesthood. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. And we looked at how it is that even though we don't have a lot of things in common, if we have Jesus in common, that is what unites us as a people. If Jesus is what we gather around, if he's who we build our lives around, not only individually, but together, then we're doing all right. But today we get into a little different situation. That now as this people, what happens when this people is living in a society and in a culture that doesn't build itself around Jesus? I have to tell you, I may have told you this before, this was a kind of a traumatic experience for me. This was 10 or 15 years ago now that I had a dream. And it was a very vivid dream. One of those where you don't feel like while you're in the dream, okay, there's something funny about this. This isn't quite right. This is one where it seemed very realistic. And when I woke up, it was, oh, thank God that that was just a dream. Because it seemed so real and so terrifying. And the dream was this. I dreamed that I was living in Oklahoma, except it was no longer Oklahoma. Because there was no more United States. It had been taken over by some foreign power. Don't know who exactly. All I know is that there was no more United States at all. And I freaked out. (laughs) And I woke up, and again, like I say, prayed, no, thank God that's not the case. But it stuck with me. In fact, it stuck with me to this day. Not that I think it was a prophetic vision or anything like that, but because it caused me to question things about how I live out my faith in the United, my faith in Jesus while in the United States. Make that clear. And try to work through those things of how I live. How much of this is, am I living this way because this is what I believe about who God is and how he's revealed himself in Jesus? And how much of how I live is just because of the culture I'm a part of? Because of the country that has uh, historical, biblical, Christian roots. And it really made me start looking at things a little differently that way. Now, like I said, that was sort of a uh, traumatic moment for me. It was actually the first time in my life that I'd ever considered the possibility that there may come a day when the United States wasn't there. I was in my mid-twenties. It never crossed my mind before that that could happen. It's happened to plenty of cultures and civilizations before. But it never crossed my mind. But it it does make you wonder. because The kingdoms of this earth will pass away, but the kingdom of God will never be destroyed. So here's a little thought experiment you can do if you don't like thinking about that. If that one's a little too, I don't know. You can even think about this. What if you were to go and live in a foreign country? Missionaries do this all the time, and it's one of the things that they have to really wrestle with is when you go and live in a foreign country, as a missionary, you are there as an ambassador of Christ, not as an ambassador of the United States. 
And that has been confused by many a missionary, and it's actually been confused by many a culture that they are going to uh, bring the gospel to. And in fact, many cultures around the world, instead of learning about Jesus, they learn about American culture. And they start adopting that and thinking that's Christianity. And sometimes in the United States, we make the same mistake. Now, here's the deal. Bring all this up. In part, to stall, because the stuff we're getting into is stuff I don't necessarily want to talk about. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 to 25. And I say it's things I don't want to talk about, not because there's not plenty to say on this, but it's because it's usually things I don't want to hear about. Because there is a natural reaction within me to several of the things that are uh, listed in here. Where my first reaction is, no, I don't want to do that. I think I'll just kind of skip over that part. Just ignore that. We can't do that. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. I'm just read through this. You'll hear it. It'll be there. Some of you may have the same reactions I do. He says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from the sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Here we go. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. All right. There's some hard words in there, aren't there? There are. And in fact, because there are some hard words in there, I think that's why Peter begins the way he does. This translates it as, dear friends. Actually, the word he uses in Greek means beloved. In other words, this is not Peter as someone who says, look, I'm an apostle. I was with Jesus, and I can tell you what to do as those, <laughs> those people who are coming after me. I can just tell you, this is what you've got to do. No. He says, dear friend, beloved, those who I care about, those who I love, those who I want good things for, let me urge you. Dear friends, I urge you to do these things. 
And he says, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles. This is important. He's already mentioned them as being exiles when he very first opens the letter. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of, and he lists all these places where they are. Now, we've seen exiles before, biblically. In fact, my son looked at the bulletin cover this morning and said, Hey, are we talking about Daniel today? Because he sees this verse. I urge you, as foreigners and exiles. I said, how did you know we're talking about Daniel? As exiles. <laughs> if you remember what happened in the situation with Daniel, that's exactly what it was. As the people of Israel, actually the people of Judah, had been exiled. They had to go out of the land that God had promised to give them because they had turned away. And he had sent them prophet after prophet, calling them back, calling them back. And they wouldn't. So they had to go out of the land. And when they went out of the land, they go into Babylon. And now where do they find themselves? Babylon. Thank you. Uh, (laughs) They find themselves in a situation where the leadership and the entire culture that they are surrounded by does not recognize or worship the one true living God. And so then the question becomes, how do they, as people who are God's chosen people, and who recognize and are desiring to worship him as the one true living God, how are they supposed to live as exiles in this kind of culture where the, everything about the surrounding culture does not recognize or worship him? That was a challenging question. But God did give them direction back then, and Peter gives people direction now. He says, when you find yourself in a situation like that, when you find yourself in a situation as a Christian where you are exiles... Not because your country believes one thing or another, but because this is not your true home. And therefore, every culture on this globe, Christians will find themselves as exiles. How are we to live? Well, we see good, good examples with Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Unfortunately, we know them by their Babylonian names. But, uh, but we see how they live. And how do they live? They actually serve the Babylonians. They live as servants, even getting uh, to the point where they're in some of the highest positions throughout this whole pagan empire. They didn't come in as rebels. They didn't come in bucking the system. They actually came in as servants. They came in submitting to a different authority. Say, so can you do that? The biblical answer is yes. You actually can. And sure, there will come moments, and there did for Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, where there was a line that was crossed, and they said, I'm sorry, we can't do that. You remember these times? The statue is built. Everybody's got to bow down and worship the statue. Oh, no, I'm sorry, we can't do that. Everybody needs to pray only to the king. Well, no, I'm sorry, I can't do that. But when we normally hear this uh, line that Peter (laughs) tells us, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, you know, our first reaction is to jump to those situations, all the exceptions to the rule, and the times where, of course, we want to rebel. I may be skipping ahead a little bit. Let me just go there right now anyway. 
if I were to hire a babysitter for my kids, and my wife and I leave, babysitter's in charge, right? <laughs> Andrew's shaking his head. No, she's not. <clears throat> because Andrew speaks for us all. <laughs> this is how we really feel. You put some other human authority over us, we go, no, not really in charge. But that's how it is. Is The babysitter's supposed to be in charge. Now, here's the thing. There may be things that this babysitter says that wouldn't be what we would say necessarily. And so, but here's the way it would work. What if we say bedtime's at 9 o'clock? The babysitter, though, says, nah, it's all right, you guys can stay up till 10. Are they going to question that? Probably not. <laughs> all right, we'll go with you on this one. What if the babysitter says, no, 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 you guys go to bed at 8 o'clock? Are they going to question that? <laughs> Yeah, what is most likely going to be the attitude? It's going to be, you're not my mom. You can't tell me what to do. (coughs) But I want you to hear this, because this is typically how we view authority that we are put under, is even if they were to... uh, What they're doing is playing the system, basically. They know that they're under our authority. They know they're under the babysitter's authority. And what they're trying to do is then play both sides, and what they're really doing is making sure that they are the one who's really in authority. You see what I mean? So if the babysitter is the one who's saying to do what they want to do, then okay, we'll go with that. But if the babysitter says, no, well, then we're going to go with the parents. And so they're picking and choosing, not based on the authority system that's been set up, or what's ultimately right or wrong, but on which one benefits them in the meantime. Now, here's the thing. I think this is the situation we find ourselves in. When we read a passage like this, it says, submit to every human authority, we immediately start thinking, well, maybe if I can work that to my advantage, in other words, if God commands me to do something but the government commands me to do something else, then I will uh, take my pick of the options and see which one suits me better. That's not the way it works. That's not the way it works. In fact, this is one of those kind of, it's a tricky situation. It's a great quote, though, from Ravi Zacharias that he posted uh, this week. We had tax day coming up. Just came up, that is. And so in advance of that, he said, Is it all right to pay taxes to Caesar? He says, That is one question I wish so desperately Jesus had answered differently. <laughs> then on April 15th, you could be godly and rebellious at the same time. <laughs> Beautiful, isn't it? Oh, how we do long for that. No, but there may, be, there may be times for rebellion. Where did my clock go? Oh, we're so far past, past time anyway. There may be times for rebellion. There may be times like in uh, Daniel's day where the king sets up something where you say, I cannot worship the government. No, we don't do that. There may be times where a babysitter, rather than changing the bedtime, says, hey, we're going to play uh, a game of torture the pets. And the kids should, at that point, say, no, I'm sorry, we can't do that. But otherwise, if all it is is things uh, like saying, you need to go to bed at 8 o'clock, if they say, you can't tell me what to do, you're not my parents, and we come home and find out that was the case, how do you think we're going to handle that? Maybe some discipline issues that have to happen for the kids who did not submit to the authority that we placed over them. This is where Peter is calling 
on people to do exactly that. Um, I put it in the situation of babysitter. I think we can understand that with a little less knee-jerk reaction than when we put it in the realm of politics. But the applications are everywhere. Let me go back, though. He says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. I didn't say what it is he's urging them. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Here's why this is so important. This is why he puts this right up front. Abstain from sinful desires because we all have sinful desires. And we could go through, spend a lot of time on those desires for money, sex, and power. That's the big three categories. Or put it in the, what is it, the three P's, same categories, different words. These strike you better uh, of possessions, power, and pride. Or the three C's of comfort, control, and consumption. It's all the same stuff. The same things we deal with. And here's the thing. What Peter is saying, abstain from these things. Nancy Reagan passed away recently, and as you may remember, she was one big in the 1980s of the war on drugs. And she said, just say... We all remember. Just say no. So easy to remember that. So hard to do. Just say no. And there have been plenty of people who have commented over the years that that is just too simplistic. That there are many situations where that doesn't work. And I will grant that there may be situations where more is required than just say no. But that is an excellent starting point. That is an excellent default position. And Peter's saying that should be our starting point and our default position when it comes to sin. Yes, it's more complicated than that. But just say no to the sin and the evil desires. And then he tells us why. Because they are waging war against our souls. They actually, you've probably heard on the playground where the kids may remember from your playground days, I'm rubber, you're glue, whatever you say bounces off me and sticks to you. You heard this one? That's the way sin works. It always has a boomerang effect. Where it never, when you try to harm somebody else, it doesn't ever harm them as much as it harms you. When you try to tear somebody else down, it does more damage to your own soul than it ever does to theirs. When you try on the, uh, to gain control over your life and over your circumstances so that you can have a feeling of power and control, you never feel as out of control. And when you try to fill, your, uh, fill the emptiness of your soul with things that you buy and buy and buy and just more and more and more, you will never feel as empty. Because there's always the opposite effect. It always boomerangs back and gets you again. He says, these are the things that are waging war against your soul, and that's why you need to say no to these things. Because the lies are there, and they seem so convincing. It's the same way they did in the Garden of Eden. Oh, look at that fruit. It's pleasing to the eye. It looks like it's good for food. It looks like it's going to satisfy. But it doesn't. Because every time we turn away from God, we do nothing but destroy our own selves. This also is the case when we have our instinctive, natural desires to disobey the very things that God tells us when it comes to how we relate to him, each other, and even the society around us. So what comes next? How are we to live? Put those things to death. We need to abstain from sinful desires. He tells us later that Jesus actually died. Uh, He bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins. 
but that's not the end of it. And live for righteousness. That's where he goes next. He says, live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. He says it again a little bit later. uh, For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. A couple things to keep in mind here. One is the good lives that we're living are not to be lived to bring glory to us. Did you notice that? You don't live a good life so people will think that you're a good person. You live a good life in such a way that people will know that you serve a good God. This is what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And he says, you know, we'll silence the talk, the ignorant talk of foolish people. Ignorant, by the way, is not necessarily an insult. It just means there's something somebody doesn't know. There are a lot of people who don't know what it means to be a Christian. That's okay. It's not okay in the long term, but it's, it's okay. They just don't know. But they need to know. So here's how you silence the talk on people who don't know what it's like to be a Christian. You live as a Christian. You live as a Christian around them. You talk to them about the things that Christians talk about. And you do it in a way that Christians do it. And then it will silence foolish talk, the ignorant talk of foolish people. Think about this. If someone were to say that Christians are those people who are, and this is one of those phrases that goes around, the people are they're so heavenly-minded, they're of no earthly good. Have you heard this one? They're so heavenly-minded, they're of no earthly good. Now, if somebody says that, because they don't know a Christian, this is just what they've heard, but then they actually see you as a Christian, going and tutoring first and second graders, delivering meals to people in need, living in a way that where you are serving those around you, it's going to silence that talk, isn't it? Because the more they learn about what it means to really live as a Christian, the less they're going to be able to say things that are ignorant and are foolish. When you hear people say that Christians are those who hate people who are different than them, how does that get silenced? Not by argument, not by debate. It gets silenced when they see Christians loving people who are different than them, serving people who are different than them, helping people who are different than them. When they see people living more as the Good Samaritan and less like the priest and the Pharisee, or the priest and Levite, this is when that silence, that talk gets silenced. Is live as free people. But do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. How do you live as free people and as slaves at the same time? You live as a free person when you know that nobody owns you. You live as a slave when you know somebody owns you. This is how we can relate to the, uh, our governing authorities and to God. Ultimately, we serve God. He owns us. He has bought us with a price. And we serve him completely. 
when we serve, submitting even to human authorities, we do it knowing, but you don't own me. I serve you because I serve the king. And that is why we are able to say, yes, I will serve you. But when you cross the line, I will say no. Because we live as free people. But again, don't use your freedom uh, as a cover-up for evil. This is where we pretend, well, I'm free from this rule because I serve somebody else, but then we don't really serve either one. We really serve ourselves. So don't do that. Live as God's slaves. There's a lot more in here that we are not even going to touch on because we are way past time already, but let me tell you. (laughs) We're going to skip to the end. And of course, when we skip to the end, we always skip straight to Jesus. And that's where Peter goes in all of this. He says this whole idea of suffering, injustice, that is going to happen in this world. Make sure that when that happens, you're on the side of the sufferer, not on the one who's causing the suffering. And when you look at Jesus, he says this is what happened with him. There's injustice in the world. That happens. But he was on the side of the one who was suffering, not on the one who was causing the suffering. And he says, he did this for you. You you want to think about what it is that we deserve and don't deserve? Did we deserve Jesus to die for us? No. Did he deserve to die? No. No. We live in a very unfair world. And there are plenty of days where it is unfair to our disadvantage, but I will tell you, on the whole, when we understand the gospel of Jesus, we understand that on the whole, this world is very unfair to our direct advantage. Because we get what we don't deserve. For you were like sheep, going astray. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The word he uses here is actually the same word he used at the very beginning of this passage where he says, uh, live such good lives among the pagans that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That on the day he visits us is actually visits us as that overseer as the one who really cares for us. When we think about what it means to be a sheep, chasing after whatever catches our attention, which is usually all the other sheep in the direction they're running, I don't know what they're going after, but it's got to be something good. Nope, it wasn't. Well, we'll try again next time. It's, It's no wonder the Bible calls us sheep over and over and over again. And sheep without a shepherd is a heartbreaking term. But when he says, but now, we have a shepherd, one who is the overseer of our souls, one who guides us and cares for us and wants good for us. And not only that, but is the good shepherd who has laid down his life for his sheep. And he calls us to have that kind of love, not only for him, but for each other. Those who are quick, faster even, to apologize for our own wrongdoings than we are to spread the wrongdoings of others. Those who lay down our lives for each other. When we do this, 
when we live good lives in whatever society we find ourselves in, we will glorify God and silence the foolish talk of ignorant people. Ignorant talk of foolish people. But God will be glorified. Not us, but him. Which is what it's all about and has been from the beginning. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.